Church family, I just want to begin by thanking all of you, and there was a lot of you who helped make Summer Block Party a reality. I was reading in uh, Psalm 145 earlier this morning, and it says this. It says, one generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for a church that wants to lean into this calling and to look at the next generation and say, we want to tell you about what we have in Jesus Christ. So thank you for that. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name's Andrew Wild, and if this is your first time worshiping with us, I want to extend to you a very special welcome. Uh, I'll let you know that it's typically our custom to preach through a book of the Bible on Sunday mornings, but we are hitting pause on our study of Luke's gospel during the summer to look at some questions that might roll through your mind from time to time. And, and our question this morning is a practical one because it deals with a topic that feels omnipresent, uh, at least to me. And that topic is politics. Now, I know in polite company, you're not supposed to talk about two things, right? Religion and, help me out, politics. But we already break the first one around here. We talk about religion, so <laughs> why not? Um, I, I say it feels omnipresent because, I don't know, maybe it's the 24-hour cable news, the Twitter feeds, the, the yard signs that seem to be at you know, every intersection and median and um, on-ramp. Uh, I, I just I feel like it's pretty hard to escape politics these days. And so the question I'd like us to ask and answer is, how does God want us to think about politics? And now, can we all agree that our country is a little divided right now? Um, about political issues. And, and it just, it seems to me as if every election cycle, there's this massive wedge that gets pounded a little bit, bit deeper into the heart of our country, driving us as Americans a little farther apart. Uh, it seems that nothing excites division like an election, and 2020 was no exception. And uh, maybe as a result of all the clamor and the divisiveness and the polarization, uh, I would suspect there are some here who are tired of politics. You hear that word and you just kind of want to tense up or shudder. I have a good friend. He, he goes here. He's so turned off by politics that he told his daughters they could marry anyone they wanted on two conditions. Number one, a man had to love Jesus more than anything else. And number two, he had to promise to never go into politics. And this dad is absolutely serious. And, and I suspect he's not the only one that's a little weary. Maybe right now some of you are thinking, I, I wish I would have stayed home this morning after hearing the topic. Go ahead and slip up your hand if that's you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just joking. But, you know, it, it, even if my own dear mother were here, I, I think she might slip up her hand. Here's what I want you to know. I, I'm not going to uh, sit here this morning and try and tell you whether you should watch The View or The Five. I'm not going to tell you who I think you should vote for or who I vote for. Rather, what I want to do is look with you at some verses in the Bible that I think should inform the general mindset that we as Christians should have when we approach politics. Now, let me be clear when I use that word politics, I'm using it in the broadest sense. I'm talking about the activities associated with the governance of a group of people. So said another way, I'm referring to the activity through which a group of people make, preserve, and amend the general rules under which they live. 
Politics comes from a Greek word, politica, which simply means affairs of cities. And so unless you're Robinson Crusoe and uh, you have the luxury of living all alone on a deserted island, politics is an inevitable reality because decisions will have to be made. And I, and I get that maybe some of you are so tired of the political pundits and the smear campaigns and the blame games. Um, you've just had enough of the right and the left. You're frustrated and exhausted. And as, as a result, your approach to politics is to ignore it. If the Bible says that our citizenship is in heaven, then who needs to be uh, uh, the party of the donkey or who needs the party of the elephant when we can affiliate with the Lamb of God? Um, and it's true that our allegiance to the Lamb of God should supersede any political affiliation. But I'd like to share with you uh, two reasons why I think God would want us to care about politics and to engage in the political process. Uh, if you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin, you can, you can jot these down. Here's the first one. I think God would want us to engage in politics and to be concerned with it because of what the Bible has to say about the importance of stewardship. It's a stewardship issue. And, and I'm going to preface this by saying that the, the thoughts here are primarily directed to those of us who live in democratic societies. There is a, a story that's told. Uh, on the last day of the Constitutional Convention, a lady approached Benjamin Franklin as he was leaving the state building there in Philadelphia and asked, well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? And, and Franklin's response was succinct but profound. He said, a republic if you can keep it. And what Franklin was communicating is that the health of our country would be absolutely dependent upon the active and informed involvement of its citizens. The, the framers of our Constitution set up a system of government where the well-being of our nation would be contingent upon the engagement of its citizens. Uh, we can think of about what Abraham Lincoln so eloquently said when he said, we uh, have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And so that means that those of us who are citizens of this country have a political responsibility. We've been given an entrustment. In order for the great experiment in ordered liberty to carry on, we need to be custodians or stewards of it. And in 1 Corinthians 4.2, we, we read this about stewardship. It's required of students, stewards, that they be found trustworthy. So oh, what the Bible teaches us is that we honor God when we try and take care of the things that have been trusted to us. And that's true if we're talking about um, creation or the, the spiritual gifts that he gives us or our finances or even our local communities, um, our, our state, our country. And since part of being a good citizen necessitates our being involved in the political process, that means we should, uh, as Christians, I think, seek to educate ourselves on the issues. Um, we should seek to influence the, the outcome of elections with our vote and maybe even run for office. Now, some people... They might um, counter this by arguing that politics is worldly. You know, wouldn't we be better off not getting entangled in the affairs of the world? I mean, shouldn't we just set our sights on things above? 
And uh, it does say in, in um, the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, then, if you have been raised with Christ, think things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. But are these verses teaching that we should be disinterested with what happens on earth? And I think the answer is no. In fact, I think sometimes it's the people who are the most heavenly-minded who do the most earthly good. And so being heavenly-minded doesn't mean that we're apathetic to what goes on around us. Or else why would the Apostle Paul write elsewhere, would he say in 1 Timothy... He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so what I see here is that even as we set our minds on things above, the Bible recognizes that we're still going to have to set a table for ourselves down here on earth. And so this leads us to reason number two, then I feel like God would want us to be engaged in politics. Political engagement is a means by which we can help create the conditions that are most ideal for the flourishing of life and the sharing of the gospel. So it's a means by which we can help create conditions that are ideal for the flourishing of life and the sharing of the gospel. In Jeremiah 29, God is giving instructions to his people who have been deported to Babylon. And, and this is what we find in chapter 29. He says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Was Babylon a secular society? Yes. Um, Babylon wasn't a Christian nation. And he says this, but, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And you know what? If we go to the New Testament and we look at a book like 1 Peter chapter 2, guess what we as Christians are called? We're called exiles. And so here's what we see. That, that even when we're exiles down here on earth, that we as Christians, God's people, still get God's blessing to go and to influence secular governments for God. And we find examples of this throughout Scripture. We can think of Joseph in Egypt. Uh, we could think of Daniel in Babylon. We can think of people like Nehemiah and Esther and Mordecai and Persia. And, and like these men and women, one way that we can seek the welfare of our communities and the flourishing of our nation is by engaging in the political process. I mean, let's just think about it for a moment. Do things like education and the justice system and the economy and access to medical care in the environment and uh, do, do all of these things uh, affect the welfare of our communities yes um, the, the welfare of our communities is is, are, is tied to these things and, and do um, elections impact these spheres and, and the answer is yes um, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the expression before elections have consequences and you know what's meant by that. The people that we elect, the individuals that um, go into office, they're going to shape the laws that are going to govern and affect the way that we live. And good laws have good consequences. They bring good benefits. 
and bad laws, um, they bring bad consequences. As an example of this, I, um, I, I, I think um, about our state where we have laws where, um, about where one could discharge a firearm. I happen to think these are good laws. Um, when I was serving in the Army, Uncle Sam gave me an all-expense-paid trip to Iraq for a year. And um, they have a different set of laws there around discharging firearms. So it, it, in Iraq, if you want to celebrate something, whether that's the outcome of a soccer game or the results of election, um, you just go outside and you shoot your AK-47 in the air. And um, I think of one particular time where... Um, I was on the outskirts of the city of Kirkuk, and um, the news broke that Saddam Hussein had been captured, and, and the people there in Kirkuk took to the streets to celebrate. And um, all night, you know, you could hear the gunfire ringing up into the air. And the next morning, um, we learned that, that several people had died and many more had been injured uh, because of bullets falling from the sky. I mean, you, you don't have to have a PhD in physics to realize that what goes up, right, must come down. Um, and, and so um, let's, let's just assume that you lived in a country like Iraq and every year that people died or were injured from celebratory gunfire. Would it be a good thing for Christians in your community to use their influence to encourage a law that would prohibit celebratory gunfire? I think it would be. And you might ask, why, why is that the case? I mean, wh what do you say to the person who says, no, I, I think this is an unnecessary restriction on my liberty. I think this is a bad law, and I think I should be able to shoot my gun into the air even if I live in an urban environment. Is this just a matter of personal opinion? Oh, you know, what's right for, for you might not be right for me. Or, or can we say definitively that this is a good law, that you shouldn't be able to shoot an AK um, up into the air if you live in an urban environment? How do we determine a good law from a bad law? How do we know which laws are going to make for the flourishing of a society? Well, I would submit to you that, that good laws are consistent with God's moral standards as they're revealed in Scripture. Now, some might say, you know, hold on, you know, tap the brakes here. Uh, our country also believes in the separation of church and state, and you know, we, we, we don't need to go merging religion into the legislative process. Shouldn't we be careful about trying to legislate our morality on other people? If an idea originates in our religion, wouldn't it be wrong to impose it on others? Uh, that's the argument we'll hear sometimes. But let's think about that for a moment. Is, is that a cogent argument? I, I would say the difficulty with that argument is that all legislation is inherently moral. There's no such thing as an amoral law. All legislation is ultimately making a judgment call under whether some activity is good or bad. If you make a law that says it's illegal to kill someone, you're taking a moral stance. You're saying murder is wrong. And the same goes for all of our other laws, whether it's prohibitions against dumping toxic chemicals into a river, or human trafficking, or sexual harassment, or incest. Laws are making moral judgments. They're saying these activities are wrong. 
And so the real question is, is whose morality are we going to legislate? Are we going to legislate the morality of, of the masses? Are we going to legislate the morality of um, uh, an elite few? Or is it a morality that squares with what God has revealed in Scripture? And, and, and we as Christians believe that culture will thrive best, that we'll experience the greatest flourishing as a nation when our laws are subject to the moral accountability revealed in God's Word. Uh, said another way, human life will flourish best when the laws of the land are just. And the way that we determine a just law from an unjust law is by whether that law aligns with God's moral law that's been revealed in Scripture. Now, I realize some might argue that this seems like a blurring uh, of the separation between church and state. And you might wonder, am I arguing for a, a, a theocracy here, some sort of Christian version of the caliphate? And, and the answer to that question is no. That the very people who wanted a, a separation of church and state also believe that a government's laws should be held accountable to God's moral law. One of the most famous lines of the Declaration speaks to this. Uh, you'll recall this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what happens is if we don't have this objective moral law from a creator to appeal to, then, then what happens is that these unalienable rights will no longer be self-evident. They become open for debate. And the options aren't so great for evaluating uh, what constitutes a basic human right. But what you're going to be left with is a scenario where might makes right, where those in power or the majority, which could be a mob, get to make the call. So as, as an example, let's say that you get a majority of a people in a state to agree that a certain segment of the population, let's just say an ethnic minority, should have limited access to public facilities and education and transportation and maybe even that this ethnic minority has to meet a different set of criteria from everyone else in order to, to vote or to get a driver's license. Now, even if the majority of the people living in that state says, hey, this sounds like a good law to us, would that be a just law? What do you think? I'm going to go with no. <laughs> but you know, there was a, a, a time in our nation's past where the majority thought that was a good law. But we stand in judgment on that today, and we say, no, that wasn't a just law. How, how do we make that call? We, so what we're realizing here is the basis for determining a just law from an unjust law can't be the opinions of the majority. Instead, you have to have an objective, universal moral law to appeal to, and this is exactly what the leaders of the civil rights movement of the 20th century did. In his famous letter from the Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. addressed the white clergymen who were critical of his nonviolent protest, and he says this. He says, um, There should be one before that. Any? All right, I'm going to start reading, and um, just listen, and then we'll hop to that, all right? He says, you express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. 
So by way of context, he's, he's there in Birmingham protesting the fact that earlier in the year, a state judge had granted city officials an injunction banning all anti-segregation protest activity. So he's saying, all right, you, you express this great deal of anxiety over a willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern, since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools. At first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us to consciously break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. Now, what's the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a, law, is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. So he's saying that whenever we make laws that align with God's revealed word, we can have just laws. Now, now having said that, I want to offer this caveat. We as Christians would still make a distinction between sin and a crime. It's a sin to covet. So is blasphemy and gossiping. But do we want the government policing these things? Uh, should taking the Lord's name in vain result in a trip to the penitentiary? I, I would say no. And I think the Bible would argue for that as well. And I know there, there could be times where it might be difficult to know whether a sin should also be a crime. But as a general principle, we as Christians recognize that we shouldn't try to legislate someone's internal disposition. We, we can't criminalize pride or covetousness. And it's not because we don't care about these things, but because we recognize that's not the role that God has given government. We know what it says in Scripture that only God can judge the heart. And according to Romans 13, um, God gives the government the power of the sword for a specific reason. And, and that reason is to restrain evil and uh, to thereby protect life and to promote good. So we don't want the government getting involved in the root of our sin, but we do want the government addressing the fruit of those sins. As an example, we as Christians don't advocate for laws against anger, but we should against murder. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, again, is, is very helpful here. He says, it may be true, <laughs> it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true the law can't make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. So why the law may not change the hearts of men, it does change the habits of men. So it isn't so much that we would want to legislate morality in the sense that we want to you know, change someone's heart through an external means, but we do want to legislate from morality so that we can have laws that are just and that will promote the flourishing of life. And using our influence to advocate for, for these kinds of laws are one way that we fulfill Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourself. And because Christians have used their influence in the political, spirit, we, political sphere, we can think about all kinds of uh, good laws 
that have come about that have benefited our neighbors. We can think about William Wilberforce and the work of the Clapham sect to bring about the, the end to the horrific practice of the slave trade. In India, um, not too far in the distant past, sati was the practice in which a widow would be burned alive on her late husband's funeral pyre. And, and thanks to the work of evangelists like William Carey, this practice was eventually banned. It was Christian missionaries in the late 19th century who helped bring it into the the painful practice of foot binding in China. It was because of Christian influence that Constantine and then later Valentinian made laws protecting the rights of newborn and, and the practice of infanticide uh, was, was formally outlawed in the Roman Empire in the fourth century. In our country, the vast majority of men and women who led the abolitionist movement in the early 19th century were Christians. But what if Christians hadn't gotten involved in these issues? Uh, what if they said, hey, you know, we, we don't want to get involved in political issues? And you know, um, some churches took this stance with civil rights issues in the 1960s. Was that the right call? When, when segregation and discrimination is happening to say, hey, um, you know, we don't want to get political here. I would say the answer to that question is no, because it's an issue that the Bible clearly speaks to. And Jesus says it matters how we treat our neighbor. And harm was being done to someone who was created in God's image. And the value and the dignity of human life was being degraded and not elevated. And, and Jesus says that we should do unto others as we would want them to do unto us. And so if you are the victim of an unjust law, I'm sure that you would want someone advocating for your just treatment. I, I, I also need to acknowledge here that the Bible doesn't offer a definitive answer for every political question we will encounter. The Bible speaks with prophetic clarity on certain issues. Uh, for example, as Pastor David mentioned last week, we as Christians are concerned with upholding the dignity and worth of every human being from the womb to the tomb. We care about the lives of the innocent and the vulnerable, even if they're unborn, which is why we support pro-life legislation. Uh, but when it comes to you know, debating the tax code or whether or not we should have universal health care or uh, what the minimum wage could be, Christians can disagree on these matters provided that they're, you're united in the fact that God very much cares about justice, uh, that he cares about the poor and the vulnerable. And, and uh, scripture just doesn't speak with the same level of clarity on how best to per pursue justice in every situation. Uh, we pray for wisdom and we look for implications. We make application. Um, there is a dotted line to these issues, but there is a solid line to other issues. And, and on issues where um, Scripture isn't as dogmatic, I, I feel that's where we as Christians need to be charitable with one another. Um, we can have uh, discussion on what would be best. We can have prayer, and we can look for wisdom on how to best promote the flourishing of life. Um, I don't, I don't want to be dogmatic on this. I, I, I offer this as more of a, maybe a, a suggestion for consideration that I feel like, hey, this is straight from the Bible. So he, hear me in this. Um, 
but, but I, I think the fact that there's a dotted line to some issues and we just have to make application and there's just a direct line to others, I think that should inform the way that we think through the ballot when multiple issues are at stake. Um, there are times when we might have to prioritize some issues over others. And in terms of hierarchy of issues, I feel like those issues that are related to the value that we attach to human life um, should be the most important because Scripture is so clear on these issues. I think we should vote with an aim towards supporting the policies that do the most to uplift the Imago Dei. Um, now, I've, I've made a lot of argument here that um, God would want us to care about politics but I want to end by saying that God doesn't want us to care too much about politics. Uh, political questions are important, but we need to realize that our highest calling as Christians is the Great Commission. That we are to go and we are to make disciples of all nations. We're to make disciples of Jesus, not to make disciples of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And that means we need to be far more concerned uh, with the salvation of our neighbors than which party they vote for. If we drive down the street and we see a sign in their yard that's for um, a candidate or a political party that we don't agree with, our, our first thought shouldn't be, well, let me go try and straighten them out politically. Our first thought when we drive by our neighbor's house should always be their salvation. We should be praying that they come to know the Lord if that isn't already the case. And while I would encourage you um, to be politically engaged, I would urge you to do so in a way that doesn't unnecessarily cost you the opportunity to share Jesus with someone who might not agree with you politically. Don't alienate someone. Don't forfeit the right to share Jesus because of a snarky post or an obnoxious bumper sticker that might turn them off. We exercise wisdom when wading into political conversations because we know that it's far more important that people hear why they need Jesus than, than who they need to vote for in November. Our witness for Jesus supersedes our witness for any political party. Uh, secondly, we need to make sure that we are being discipled more by God's word than we are Fox News or CNN. Uh, when it comes to political questions, our first thought shouldn't be, well, what does Rachel Maddow or what does Carlson Tucker think about this? our first thought should be, I wonder what God says about this. God's word stands in judgment over the platforms of both political parties. Um, both political parties are worldly. Uh, and and God's, God's word is above that. Uh, thirdly, we need to remember that our ability to, to influence a culture towards God isn't dependent upon political power. In fact, political power can quickly turn into an idol. And we can mistakenly invest our hope in the wrong things. We as Christians would do well to be more focused on serving people and meeting the needs in our community than political strategizing or you know, figuring out how we can get the right candidate in the halls of power. Without a doubt, one of the most influential women of the 20th century was Mother Teresa. Did she ever have a political office? Was she ever a head of state? No. But guess who sought her out for wisdom? Heads of state. And all she did 
was just, she just spent a lifetime serving the dying people of Calcutta. You, you know what it cost to gain that kind of influence? It wasn't a bunch of $1,000 a plate dinners, was it? It was simply a lifetime of service. And, and that kind of influence is available to us as well if we follow Jesus' command to seek to be a servant of all. Finally, we need to remember where our hope is found. Our hope isn't in getting the right person in the Oval Office. Our blessed hope, according to Titus 2.13, is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Savior will never come flying in on Air Force One. Our Savior is seated at the right hand of God, and it's from here, there that he's going to return one day for us. You know, Jesus looked at Pilate, and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And that means the United States of America, as much as I love it, is not the kingdom of God. I love the Constitution. Uh, I think it's a great document. But there is no guarantee that that document is going to pass into eternity. But God does give us that promise about his word. He says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so that means that, yeah, it, it can be tempting to lose hope when our particular candidate um, isn't elected or our party isn't the majority, but we remember where we place our hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Our redemption is never going to come from the U.S. Capitol building. Our redemption was purchased for us on a hill in Calvary 2,000 years ago. And uh, he gets our greatest allegiance. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, I come before you now in the wonderful name of our Savior, and I want to do um, just exactly what you said when you instructed us that we should pray for those in positions of authority, and we do that. We join our hearts together now, and we lift up those who are serving at every level. Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom. We pray that you would give them understanding. We pray that you would help them to know what would be best in your eyes as they're faced with uh, making a lot of hard and difficult decisions. Lord, we pray um, that you would help them uh, to recognize what would be most pleasing to you, what you would deem to be right and best, and what you would deem to be wrong and, and, and ultimately uh, harmful for our society. And Jesus, I think of what you said, where you said we were to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And I pray that you would help us to orient our hearts in the right way, that, um, that we would do that. And at the same time, help us to be good citizens. Help us to live and, and to engage and to conduct ourselves in such a way that as a result of the responsibility that we've been given, that our neighbors would be better off because of the way that we would steward that responsibility. And Lord, I, I think of the person here who walked in 
with something heavy on their heart. And I pray now that as we worship you, as we sing to you, as we, as we give you the praise that is due your name, that you would speak to us by your spirit, that you would come and you would minister to us, that you would let us hear from you and that you would let us see a little bit more of your glory, that we might be changed and that we might experience the life that you would want to give us. And we ask this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.